as soon as the Inquisition finds something they think is going to save humanity, it usually starts spewing demons. <laughs> Welcome to episode 37 of the Narrative Wargamer podcast, a non-competitive 40k podcast with a focus on fun and narrative gameplay, as well as hobby news and our latest hobby projects. I am Tony Rhodes, and tonight I'm joined by Chris Walburn. What up? And Dave Barker. Hi gentlemen, hi listeners. As always, before we get started, you can find us at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook, or you can follow us on Twitter at Narrative40k and on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer. You can also contact us via email at narrativewargamer at gmail.com if you have any questions or if you would like to join us on a future episode. If you want to support the show and help us grow, you can do so by joining our Patreon from only $2 a month. As a supporter, you can listen to our bonus episodes on Patreon and gain access to our patrons-only group chat. The support from our patrons helps us produce the show and goes towards awesome new content for you guys in the future. Finally, if you want to support the show for free, you can do so by visiting the awesome folks over at Element Games for all your hobby supplies and gaming miniatures. Just use our affiliate link below to visit their web store and that way any purchases you make will directly help support the podcast. Links for everything are in the description below, so please check them out and get involved with the growing community. And speaking of the community, it's been a little while, but we've got both Dave and Chris back on the show. Yay! Yo, yo, yo. And in fact, even more so than that, me and Chris have actually finally met each other in person for the first time. The physical realm had never seen narrative like it. It's brilliant. Where did you meet up? Nando's. Don't worry. Um, (laughs) We had a a local gaming event at my uh, hobby-friendly local gaming store. And okay. Tony was invited. It was an invitational 40k event, and he came along, and we played against each other at the last game. Excellent. You yeah. got it, Nando's, because you brought cheeky walkers. Because it was because it was cheeky more than anything. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was um, it was a great time. Like I say, it's um, like obviously I've been producing this show now for a couple of years, and in that time, I've only actually met a handful of my fellow co-hosts and guests in person given you know the nature of the internet these days and uh, the covid times that we're hopefully seeing the back of now more or less but yeah so it means the upshot of all that was actually since the last recording i've actually managed to uh, meet chris in person it was a wonderful time and we even got to play a game like you mentioned which was a nice surprise considering it was an event and we didn't necessarily know if we were going to get to play any games together no, uh, we weren't originally going to, but then the stars aligned and some players went home and, uh, yeah, we, we did our bit. Yeah, I mean, it's worth mentioning as well that it was also the first time I got a chance to meet Jake of uh, Cadian Shop fame, as he was there. Um, so I also got to meet him and have a chat and get to say hi for the first time. But uh, the stars did not align in such a way that I ended up playing the Cadians as well as the Admech, so... Uh, it was a good time had by all, and I, I had great games with the, uh, the people that I did play against anyway, so yeah, we're um, we're going to visit that shortly in a little bit in our games played section, because predictably both me and Chris have some games to talk about. <laughs> awesome. Um, so yeah, and then Dave, you've just been uh, 
you've been busy with life, as is the case. But uh, yeah, you've come back Teenage to kids, your... work. You know how it is. <laughs> yeah, the usual. But of course, you had to come back for your feature segments at this point, which is our forty k fun facts. Yeah, if I see if I can keep up my uh, my complete. You you normally say an unbeaten run, but in my case, I think it's a completely beaten run, right? I think only just, like you put up a fair fight every time, but yeah, so far, um, so this is our third Fun Facts episode and we already have a fourth one lined up in the pipeline, but um, so far you've been the regular contestant as it were on all of them, so I'm starting to feel like you're becoming our resident, um, sort of like chaser slash, you know, quiz opponent as it were. Could he be our Bradley Walsh? Could Tony be Bradley Walsh? I'm sure he could. Tony I'm could be Bradders, absolutely. Yeah. I was <laughs> wondering whether we could could take this format to the Edinburgh Fringe next August, uh, Tony. <laughs> I'm sure we could probably come up with enough content. <laughs> but yeah, um, so funnily enough, with, there's a very packed schedule coming up with a um, sort of like a lot of episodes of contents worth to go over. Again, to give us a little overview of where we're at with the show. Um, we're closing in on 40 episodes we're just shy of um, 17,000 lifetime downloads and at the rate it's been progressing now 20k lifetime downloads for the show is not far away awesome. I'm surprised if we see a dollar after the new year and uh, it's certainly been the case there's been a bit more of an uptick in traffic and people discovering the show and you know it's, it's lovely I think there's been a a bit more of an uptick of, of narrative wargaming. I think people have started trying things like Crusade. Um, and a lot, I, w- I went to the Salute show last weekend in London, um, the big wargame show that's focused on all sorts of different sorts of games. And um, yeah, the whole concept of narrative, smaller, skirmish type plays, it's really big in the industry at the moment. And I, I, I think it's been a, maybe a bit of a reaction of coming out of lockdown and starting to play games again, you want to tell stories. And, you know, the thing that we always talk about, the thing that drives us, I, I think that's I think that's out there more than it's ever been in the past. I agree. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I do think that part of that as well is, I think, a portion of the regular gaming community are starting to get a little... Um, a little bored of being oversaturated with the GT formats. Yeah. Uh, as a few different sources and uh, content creators and such, I've heard mentioned now, you know, that like, you know, it, the GT stuff is getting a little, you know, repetitive. To, and in a way that it does its job really well for, you know, events, for tournaments, all the rest of it. I mean, we played that format at the Boards and Sword then. The, yeah, Boards and Swords. Yeah, bash, bash for sure. Bash, let's say, yeah. We played that sort of format at the Bash Invitational, and I really enjoyed it. But I think that's probably because those were also some of the very first games of match play I have ever played in 9th edition. So to me, it was something new and different. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think the reverse is true for a portion of people now who've spent a year playing 9th Ed GT stuff and actually would look, they would like to try stuff that's not necessarily narrative because it's narrative, but narrative because it's different. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I had my first time, and I've talked about this before when I was on the podcast, the first time I went back to was a uh, competitive tournament in, in Saffron Walden in Essex. And it was great. It was absolutely fine. Um, I just don't want to go to another one for some time. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is, it started um, to make me want to host like an event day of my own more and more. Um, and I'm starting to make some progress in putting plans into action um, so that hopefully in the start of the new year sometime I might actually be able to run a narrative event for, you know, somewhere between sort of like 10 to 30 players. And uh, I've got good. some ideas. And yeah, I think if you um, really interesting. If you need a place for that, mate, Bash would more than happily help you out. And if you need any guidance on doing it, I, I have helped organise a substantial uh, war games tournament for a different system in the past. So uh, more than happy to pitch in if you uh, you want to talk about it. Excellent. I may pick both your brains in that case. <laughs> but otherwise, uh, for tonight, the other thing that I'll be picking your brains on is going to be the law of Warzone Octarius, in particular, Book One, Rising Tide. Right. Now, we may or may not be the most timely podcast out there in that we're going to be doing an episode on Book One of Warzone Octarius, when in fact, Book Two is already in my hands as it is. But that's just how things have fallen this time around, because for some reason, Book Two has blitzed its way onto the scene after Book One. And uh, it takes us this long to be able to actually plan, record, and produce these things. So I can tell you now that next episode is probably going to be Wars on Octarius Book 2, and the one after that is probably going to be our Fun Facts Part 2. <laughs> so, uh, and even in there, we've still got two whole Crusade mission packs we need to uh, investigate as well. So we'll get there. Yeah, I have read the mission packs. I, I've not read uh, Octarius. I've not really read Octarius one yet either, to be honest. So I'm not. I'm not a, a, an unnecessary advantage tonight. <laughs> Even planes for both of us, Dave. Let's see what happens. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so yes, we'll uh, we'll be looking forward to that uh, shortly. But before that, we're going to transition briefly to our. I say briefly, but we're going to move over now to games played, where me and Chris will give us a little bit more of a rundown of our games at uh, the Bash Invitational and Dave has also been playing um, a game or two I believe as well so just a little bit just a little bit so we'll be back in a moment with that guys games played And we're back, guys. So we're going to start off with Dave, who has been, unlike myself, uh, Dave has actually been indulging in some narrative play. <laughs> so uh, I have uh, about that. Yeah, I mean, Portugal is not the only game I've been playing, but it's the one I'll focus on in, in this podcast. Um, and I've been doing a little bit of 40k Crusade, as, as we might imagine. So you think we all know that I kind of love my Rainbow Warriors, and um, I like telling stories about them, and Crusades and I have reward for doing that. So I think I mentioned the first game that I've played on this uh, mini Crusade that I'm embarked on, uh, to find the story of my chief librarian, my chief librarian of the Rainbow Warriors, who's known as Octarine, after... Terry Pratchett's Colour of Magic, right? And um, I wanted to see, you know, I wanted to tell a story about how he got to where he was. So a lot of my, a lot of my painted Rainbow Warriors are actually second company, certainly the firstborn are. Um, and um, I wanted to, to put the librarian in there and see how he evolved. And um, I, I managed to get three games in. So I think the first one I, I talked about already because I played against um, Hadian Dan. So um, 
uh, at the club against his uh, death guard. And um, yeah, the, the librarian was uh, in that battle killed uh, by the death guard warlord in a sort of heroic fight, a heroic unbalanced fight for a <laughs> novice librarian against the death guard warlord. Uh, but he did kill the he did kill a fetid bloke drone with a psychic scourge, um, but no, uh, he, he didn't really uh, progress very far with that. It was just a, an interesting thing that happened. And then the second game that I played, I was playing against um, a Tau player who um, honestly made a couple of tactical mistakes. Uh, um, he, Chris would admit that himself. A uh, different Chris, I'm sorry, not you, Chris. Gonna say, Dave, I feel yeah. scathed. <laughs> yeah, you don't play tower, right? <laughs> what was he? Did he charge? Was that his tactical? Error? No, he he sort of castled up, and uh, I used orbital bombardment at the start, and he <laughs> sort of yeah, he moved out of the way, which was good. But then I kind of you know then picked him off around the edge, uh, mostly, um, and, and that was good. Although there was a nice nice bit on the other side of the table where the crew came in from the side of the board, and. For some reason, I thought, "Oh, the librarian's out there on his own." So he went in with with half a squad of, uh, well, it was the it was the tactical half of a devastator squad. Actually, he went in with, because uh, I'd combat squadded them up, and um, uh, yeah, they they did okay. They cleared out the crew, but not before the crew killed the librarian. And narratively, we said, "Well, he he, he took a wound as well when we rolled it up at the end." So I said, "Well, the crew, you know, took a big chunk out of his arm uh, to take it away and eat it," you know. Um, as they do. Um, so he gained a chest wound. Uh, uh, what's it called? Battle scar. Um, and then, then it completely turned around. So this point as well. One of the things with I found the Space Marines. If you're combat squadding them up and you take the, um, I nearly said stratagem, and that's the wrong word. The, the thing where you gain experience points for doing things. Agendas. Agendas. Thank you very much. <laughs> I took the the agenda where they gain experience when they uh, pass morale checks. And when you combat squad them up, of course, they can be passing two morale checks a turn um, sometimes. Um, so, you know, I've talked about it with, with my opponents and they've agreed that does seem to be the case. They're taking two separate morale checks. So the, the tactical squad, the two tactical squads and the devastator squad I've got in my crusade force have been racking up experience quite rapidly and become almost the stars of their army as they are. Um, but I, I wanted to keep the focus around, around the librarian, really. So I kept putting him in. And the, the third game I, I played was against a, a local Admech player, um, who was uh, was quite interesting. I've, I've never really played against Admech before, and they got some weird creatures and some powerful weapons on sometimes quite fragile platforms. Um, the other the other heavy thing I've got in the Crusade Force is a um, Predator um, with the auto cannon, and that is that was quite good against against some of those those machines. Eventually, it was taken out. Um, but again, the, the librarian ended up uh, facing down uh, plasma-wielding cataphron destroyers, <laughs> which was a, a bit hard. But um, he did kind of out-psychic them a little bit, and then with the help of the now two ballistic silk devastator squad, <laughs> uh, managed to, to clear them out and uh, sort of came out for the first time in a battle ahead. Um, and with the finally, he started gaining some experience. Um, but again, the, the psychic trait, because um, uh, we were playing the ritual, so he gained a, an additional item. And he was marked for greatness in the battle as well. And I spent a requisition to remove the chest wound. So all of a sudden, he came out of himself as the hero of the battle um, with an extra uh, psychic discipline. 
and um, he's really building himself up now to be uh, promoted within the chapter after a couple more games so uh, it's quite fun uh, seeing how he goes seeing how he works with the other guys see how some of the space marines can can take on that heroic dimension uh, with the uh, get the the positive things that they gain during uh, a crusade but also the interesting interaction of um, how some of the battle scars work it's finding it quite fun so far so is your plan to actually try and grade him to achieve librarian once he's gained enough ranks yeah yeah absolutely i think that's uh, exactly where i'd like to go uh, but i want to see whether i can drag it out a little bit more or whether i can uh, keep it keep it moving forward a little bit <laughs> Just, uh, just make sure he doesn't get turned into a dreadnought on the way. Yeah, well, hopefully not. Hopefully not. But um, yeah, it's it'd be interesting if he does, because maybe maybe he's not the librarian I thought he was, and I'd have to start again with a different librarian. I mean, and then that can be the that can be the prequel to the actual story you'd be telling in the next games. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, what would be interesting there is um, so what successor traits do you use for your Rainbow Warriors, or at least in this Crusade? Uh, yeah, so I use uh, the one that gives them, uh, because they've been around for a long time, Rainbow Warriors in the first edition rulebook, I wanted something that, that resembled durability. So I've got the, I can't remember the name of it, the Fortitude one that saves uh, mortal wounds on a 5+. Plus. Yeah. And the one that says you can't uh, be wounded on anything worse than a 3+. Plus. Yeah, as a mini transhuman. So what I was getting at is um, they're not technically like blood angels are they or like blood angel successes or anything no or... technically they're ultramarine successes but um but what i was my gonna own... say is that if your librarian for example was the one who suffered enough battle scars to use the requisitions to become a dreadnought right. i think that would be the perfect example and opportunity to actually just use a blood angels librarian dreadnought like data sheet right begin actually maintain him as a librarian in, you know in death as it were use okay. your you know don't use blood angels like your powers use your own ones yeah. but there'd be a cool opportunity to make him into a librarian dreadnought for your crusade even though it's not strictly speaking a thing you could normally take i might talk to my local players about that and see whether that'd be a good uh, good way to go forward that's an interesting idea i'd not thought to doing something like that i mean obviously they're not going to only... want to kill him because they don't want him coming back as a dreadnought yeah, I was going to uh, say, no. obviously, this is only if things <laughs> take a bad turn for him. Yeah. At the moment, he's doing okay. Uh, so he's building up, and he's, he's quite good. He's, he's, he's gained the psychic might, so he's got the, the extra power, and the master of law, so he's got the... Um, uh, so he's got one extra power he can cast, and one extra power that he knows. So. Fair enough. So we'll see where we go. Yeah. So it's fun. Like I said, uh, I've been enjoying seeing that narrative uh, evolve. And um, I'm looking forward to uh, getting them on the table top uh, two, three, four more times and, and seeing where it goes. And speaking of evolving narratives, Chris, I believe you have a, a surprise narrative experience that sort of just manifested itself, didn't it? No one was more surprised than me, Tony. Um, so I was having a bit of a naff weekend. The Saturday started on a low note, and my brother wanted to come up and play some 40k. So I said, yeah, bring. Um, Bring your Necrons, we'll have a 25 power level game on the kitchen table. So we wiped the boards out, we threw some terrain down, uh, and we just played a very quick, really nice 25 power level 500 point game of my Orcs against his Necrons. Uh, and we loved it so much, we thought, cool, let's have another one. And we had another one the next day. Uh, and 
as we got started playing the second game, we decided, okay, this is now going to be a crusade. We're telling the story of the uh, Necron Overlord who's summoning his noble, no, his um, his noble allies, his royal wardens, and his technomancers and such to take over this world that they've been in, entombed on. Uh, and my war boss is after their metal because he wants to add more to his mega armor body, despite the fact he cannot use Necron metal because it is living <laughs> metal. But what he thinks is that he just needs more of it, so he wants to kill as many Necrons as he can, including the Overlord, to acquire their metal. Uh, so the first game was brilliant. It was a fairly decisive victory to the Orcs, uh, swamping onto the objectives, engaging the Necrons as fast as possible so they don't get that ridiculous 12-inch straight 5 AP2 shooting. Uh, the war boss did Gorp's work and just chopped through most things that he was up against, and it was good. Then the second game, uh, it was a. I felt a little bit bad about this one. I managed to get turn one. I uh, warpathed a squad of ten orc boys with choppers to give them extra strength. Uh, declared a war, ran them up the board, charged his Necron Overlord, his uh, Crypto Thrells, and a squad of warriors turn one, killed the Overlord, killed the Thrells, and then consolidated to both units of his Necron Warriors so he couldn't shoot. <laughs> Ten up boys. Um, and, oh, and I also threw a couple of rockets at his Annihilation Barge, which he painted up that day for this game, uh, and it didn't get to fire in anger. Well, I was going to say, that's just a mistake, isn't it? That's uh, that's new Volsy. Exactly. I expected to He has no one to blame game. but himself. Uh, it, so it, that was a... I, I don't know. We should acknowledge it is pretty cool when you get two fully painted armies on the tabletop, and we've seen, I'm seeing a lot more of that since lockdown's been, been going on. That is pretty cool. Yeah, and it was that great because he, like me, he's very, very busy. And in fact, he dedicated time to do something for our game as important as getting everything painted. You know, you can't kind of put a, a amount of thanks on. And then for me to throw a couple of BS5 rockets at it and blow it up <laughs> in the first turn was just a little bit savage. So another victory for the Orcs. I managed to get most of his Necrons off the board. Uh, it, we played the missions from the Pierce the Veil pack. Okay the Necron one that came out initially with Ninth. So yep. the second mission was uh, a shrouding veil where there was a line across the long ways of the board in the centre. And you get a five up inborn if you shoot through it because there's a green Necron glowing mist you have to try and get on the other side on to get a victory points. And obviously turn one, wying orcs, just running up the board and then charging, that was quite easy for me to do. Yeah. Uh, then game three we played immediately afterwards. So we upped it from, so we did 25 power for the first game. 35 for the second, and I think we did 45 or 50 for the last one. Uh, and it was, oh god, the um, the unstilled, I think it was. The objectives randomly moved about the place to reflect local populace and things moving around in the days. And uh, both yes. captain, yeah, yeah. both generals wanted to capture them to research them. Really, really good mission. I really enjoyed it. Um, and that was a hard, hard fight. Uh, because my war boss ran up the board and did what he did best, and then a Necron Doomstalker looked at him and went, hello, and put the largest hole in my Orc Mega Boss that anyone has ever seen and killed him in one shot. <laughs> he blew up my Death Dread, he slaughtered a load of boys. All that was left by the end of the game was his Doomstalker and his Command Barge badly damaged. No, I got his Command Barge. Uh, so I had two Orc Boys and an Orc Knob and my Weird Knob left. He had his Doomstalker, and it ended 80 points to 80 points. Oof. So it was, it literally came, because you roll at the start of the battle round to see where the objectives go. Whoever rolls highest moves them that many inches in the direction they're choosing. 
there yeah. was one closer to my old boys, so instead of moving it towards his own board edge, he moved it closer towards mine, because he knows I want to go and kill that Doomstalker. So that was a great play on his part. Uh, and yeah, so we told the story of his Necron Lord went back into slumber, my Orc Warboss was carried off back to his rock, dismayed at the fact that he didn't get all the metal he wanted, but he vowed to return one day and claim more metal for his Cyborg Megabody. And we will be playing some bigger size games to carry on that crusade uh, once we get some time. Thank you. He will build himself a living Cyborg body. He will. He'll be better than he was before. Bigger, stronger, faster. He will have his um, own Orchidermis. Yes, he will. Uh, I, I'm going to turn the narrative in to have a mech included, and the mech's literally going to be there to say, look, you can't do that, it won't work, you're being ridiculous. Which is not um, something an orc mech ever typically says. Exactly, <laughs> but I want this conflicting narrative of an exceptionally stupid, brutish war boss and a mech who's just kind of constantly pressing, pinching the bridge of his nose and stressing at the side of his temples because the war boss won't listen to him. <laughs> um the great thing about that whole thing was that it was so random. It went from a random 25 power level game of 40k at the kitchen table to this arching narrative of two characters that we both invested time into making. Um, we then, so when we got our battle traits and honors, uh, we fit them around our story. So my Orc Warboss got the inspiring aura because they'd watched him walk through like 20 Necron warriors, a reanimator, uh, and then a couple of characters, so he's literally shredding metal and attaching it to his body, so he's inspiring the orcs around him. Uh, and yeah, it was just really nice to have that sudden sporadic. When you're 10 years old and it's like, oh, I've got nothing to do today, let's get me a mate around and play 40k. Yeah. It was very reminiscent to that. Or Warhammer 40,000, as we called it back in the day, because we couldn't play on the table because we weren't allowed. <laughs> awesome. Good old Warhammer. So yes, that was some um, really nice sporadic random narrative, and I'm excited to carry on and add more to my orcs, because I'm nearly at capacity to have stuff we can use in that game. So we'll see what I get next. Excellent. And then, am I right in thinking, it was the following day that we then attended the Balls and Swords Invitational? Or is that the weekend before or after? No, that was... was that last week? Yeah, no, these games took place yesterday and Saturday. Right, and so the you and I played week before that. the weekend before. Yeah. So yeah, like the so the Balls and Swords Invitational was um, it was a really great day. It was, and um, it's funny how like I say it was. It was the three games on the day were my second, third, and fourth games ever of match play in uh, ninth edition. Exactly um, the same as me. I'd played one and a couple of weeks beforehand to try and see what was going on, and it still didn't help me at all. Yeah, that's exactly what I did. In that, I um, I had done um, Wellington rounds to play a game the week before, um, just to literally be like, this should be my first game of match play. I'm going to a match play event. I should probably play at least one game of it before I go. Um, which is funny because at the time when I did, played my practice game against Dan. Um, I took a Death Skulls orc list that had three flyers in it, and then the next day the um, the data sheet balance dropped. Games Workshop said no, <laughs> um, which is funny because that was the Monday before the event on the following Sunday, and it became pretty clear immediately in the sort of like event group chat 
that everyone was really excited about the data rebalance and wanted to use it all and I, I was in complete agreement even though it meant I had to rewrite my list um, and basically um, I had to just work with what I had that was painted in order to make my Battleforged force um, legal. <laughs> You can always tell when something controversial has been released on Warhammer Community because your gaming group chat will be on like 30 notifications and you'll be like, well, either something hilarious has happened in a game or something's come out that's upset or pleased a lot of people. Or probably both. <laughs> yes, or a mix of both. Um, so yeah, the, the main upshot of it for me was it meant that I ended up bringing the Gorkadot, which was not something I'd originally planned on doing, but actually uh, it was one of my favourite units of the whole day across all three games. So. I'm really glad I took it actually because it did a lot of fun things. So um, the event used a sort of like free, um, it used like an alliance system for Imperial, Xenos and Chaos forces and the idea was that of the 18 players there there'd be six from each alliance and you would in theory play one opponent from each alliance um, across the three rounds. So everyone will get to play an Imperial opponent, a Xenos opponent, and a Chaos opponent. Um, and it was great. And there were three different missions, obviously predetermined from the GT pack. And like I say, for me, it was a kind of a first, really, sort of playing these missions. Um, so I enjoyed them for being something a little bit different to what I normally do. Um, but I know there were obviously other regular players who had played them a fair bit and were familiar with them, so... I think it, the day ran really smoothly. You know, everybody sort of showed up on time. Everybody kind of knew what they were doing and got stuck into it. And it was a great time. And there was a great selection of armies um, present. I mean, obviously, there was a relatively even spread um, due to the alliance system. Um, and all the armies that showed up were great. There were some lovely, like, painted and converted ones. In fact, the um, the best painted award in the end went to a, um, a Necron army that had all been sculpted to look as though they had wooden carapace on everything. But you know, um, score, scoring that many armor panels on models that don't cost these is a, a risky endeavor, so to pull it off as well as you did was absolutely wicked. Yeah, it did. It looked really nice in that effect, and uh, he, he also had a significant amount of Scorpec destroyers um, <laughs> in his list as well, which was uh, really interesting to see, because obviously he was having fun with his new core keywords that had been yes, thrown I around imagine, all over the place. I imagine where some people were throwing their arms up in dismay, he raised his eyebrows and started stroking his beard. He, uh, he threw his bladed limbs up in glee. Yep, all three of them. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, me and Chris will just give us a quick sort of rundown of the various games we played. So... Um, starting with myself, my first game was against some World Eaters. Um, which was interesting to see because I don't think I can't remember the last time I played anything close to World Eaters, like as an army. Um, so very angry Red Butcher Terminators, several units of Berserkers, Khan himself, um, and some Obliterators and Warp Talons, and uh, a pair of Venom Crawlers actually, which was interesting because it's the first time I've actually been across the table from Venom Crawlers and. Uh, yeah, the, the way that they regain wounds when they chomp on Orc boys is somewhat annoying. <laughs> but, ultimately, um, when that happened, they equally did not like being hit by a tank buster bomb. So, <laughs> swings and explosive roundabouts. Um, but yeah, that was, um, that was a really interesting game where we played... So my first game was 
short table edges, six objective markers, basically your sort of standard hold one, hold two, hold more, and secondaries. And with hindsight, I think I sort of made probably like, I could have picked a better third secondary and because raise the banners wasn't something that I ended up getting a lot of points on, but otherwise um, grind them down and can't remember what the other one was. Oh, uh, engaged all fronts um, did well for me, and um, it was funny because it was a really close game where actually the world eaters, as you can imagine, threw themselves at me pretty quickly and aggressively, <laughs> um, and my main sort of like counter threat was to equally throw the Gorkonaut at them. Um, and opening salvos went well for me. I blew up a couple of things with shooting. Uh, I gunned down a couple of wounds off things like the warp talons and stuff. I, uh, blew up one Venom Crawler. And I wrecked the Rhino holding Khan and nine Berserkers. That's the important one. Yeah. Now the interesting. Yeah, now the interesting thing is that Khan then ended up charging the Gorkonaut, and this was a fully unwounded Gorkonaut versus a fully unwounded Khan with Khan on the charge. And realistically, the Gorkonaut should have taken a bit of a beating and then probably smushed him because I only needed one successful wound to get past his invun, and it would do the flat six damage to <laughs> turn him into a red smear. Yeah. Um, unfortunately for me, the Gorkonaut whiffed its attacks. And I only ended up getting um, two successful wounds on him. He passed one in Von, and Commander rolled his second one to a pass. Um, at which point, then Khan turned around and attacked it twice and clawed it down. <laughs> What's he like? Very, very angry. Um, as, soon but... as, as soon as World Ears get a book, I'm all over it. Yeah, I think there'll be a really fun army. So like that, it was just um, I was like, oh, well, that's unfortunate dice rolling, um, but yeah, fair enough. But in the end, the game was really close. Um, it toed and froed. Khan eventually got dragged down by a smite of all things, which I queried at the time because like I'm sure Khan must have some kind of defense against psychic powers, be it immunity or. Like a, it used to get game. the brass collar of corn, which gave it obviously old old money. But yeah, brass collar yeah. of corn was normally like a deny the witch or a yeah. modifier or something like that. So I mean, it was kind of a little bit of uh, it didn't mean much anyway because if I didn't smite him to death, he was in combat with my death killer war track on one. He was on one wound, so yeah. I was probably just going to cut him down anyway. But um, I tell you what, though. In, Corn Berserkers, they really do pack a punch. I mean, I know that they mince a lot of things, but even Toughness 5 Orcs, they they did the job. Yep. But um, they do not like being shot by uh, AP1 and AP2 shooters, though. No. So that was my solution there. And in the end, um, that game came out 71 to 74 in favor of the World Eaters. Which is nice. Those are the games you want. Yeah, it was a really close game, and one more... If it, if it had been a five-point difference in the primary at any point, if he'd earned five less or I'd earned five more in the primary, that would have been the difference in the game. And I don't yeah. know like, you know, where I could have 
made a slight change of plan to do things a bit better. So I learned from that and to say that it was a loss, it was still 71 points so, and, it, and it only lost by three victory points, even though I kind of, I had control of the board by the end of the game, the World Eaters had just been earning a little too much on their primary whilst grinding me down in the first place. Yeah. So how did um, your first game go, Chris? So my first game was against Charlie and his Grey Knights. I've not played Charlie before, I've seen him at the store, good lad, always got on with him. Um, it's probably one of the few games of 40k I've played recently, and certainly one of the first competitive ones where we've both been in hysterics, just things going on. So it was against, it was my Admech list against his Grey Knights, and instantly I knew I was in for an uphill battle because obviously there's nothing I can do about psychic powers as an Admech player. Um, but there was just a lot of Dread Knights zipping about all over the place and perilsing and getting really powerful super smites off and then rolling one damage and re-rolling it and getting another one. Hmm. Um, yeah, it was lots of hilarity. Um, it was nice because he's not one of the more experienced players. He's only been playing recently with Simon, who organized the event. Um, and he did a lot of things really, really well in that game. And he came off the winner and it was very, very good. I really enjoyed it. My second game was against Tom's Tyranids. Lovely, beautiful looking army. Um, like Orcs, something about a fully painted Tyranid army just tickles you in the right places. Um, and that was one of the more competitive lists I've played in my times playing 40k. There was six Hive Guard and 19 Gene Stealers zipping out of nowhere and four or five big monstrous creatures, all, all with psychic powers and using some of the new Octaria stuff. Um, the star of that game was my Imperial Knight Lancer, uh, who I could tell Tom wasn't sure whether he should just ignore it or put everything into it and try and get it down, and he chose to ignore it. Uh, at which point I was able to sprint up the board, and I think I killed two or three of his big monsters with him in some really nice kind of cinematic, big stumpy robot against giant Godzilla-style alien yeah, dinosaurs. I did actually um, get the chance to like pass by your game as that was going on. Um, I was getting, you know, like, had a quick break or whatever um, and yeah. I saw your Night Lancer was sort of like clearly laying claim to a portion of the battlefield like yes. <laughs> you mentioned at the time it wasn't going massively favourably in terms of score for you but like you certainly had this dominant power that was this uh, Night Lancer just laying siege to these Tyranids yeah my, my, my Imperial Knight was having a good time so I was having a good time another loss for me very little I could do about it. Uh, clearly a better player than I. More his event than mine. No problem. Good times, GG. Uh, I don't really want to talk about that third game because I was bitterly disappointed in the competitiveness of my opponent, if I'm being honest. Did you meet one of those super competitive types, a winner at all costs? Do, you know, do you know, Dave? I thought they were a myth. <laughs> there was a... No, my third game was against uh, our venerable and delightful host, Tony, and it was a pleasure to meet. Uh, beautiful army. Uh, as soon as I saw the Gorkonaut, I knew there was only one way that had to go. Um, but I'll let Tony tell it because he could probably tell it better because I was being distracted by car horns and stuff. <laughs> oh yeah, God. I'll yeah. update you on that, by the way. We've had a, we've had some nice updates. Oh, uh, positive updates. Positive updates, absolutely. Yeah, because apparently um, it turns out right outside the store is a, uh, a hotspot gathering point for very loud, very obnoxious van owners. <laughs> Okay. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> that was certainly a thing that happened. <laughs> but hopefully it won't be happening again. 
However, uh, more onto better things that did happen that day was that um, my game two was actually against Simon, the event organizer, which was lovely because I got a chance to have obviously like a good chat with him about stuff, and uh, he was he was really nice and um, interested to you know get to know me and ask us some questions because he knew that I, I think in the end I'd been the person who travelled the furthest to sort of come to the event. Um, not that I'd gone you know miles and miles as it were, I, I was about an hour away. Um, to get there, and he knew that I knew both Jake and Chris, and um, and he knew about the podcast, and was just excited to sort of you know see me there at the event, and I was I was equally excited to be there, and it was great. Um, yeah, so, so, so I'll jump in just for a second yeah, and say so. So Simon Mohini's kind of our champion for 40k at the store. He's the one who does the posts in our Boards and Swords community Facebook group, see who's playing. He links everybody up the games. He matches players so that he knows that they're going to have a competitive game or a friendly game or whatever they want to play. He's super welcoming and polite and like lets everybody in who he wants. And it's people like him we need in stores like that and to do these events and run these events. Uh, so huge, massive props to Sai and thank you for all the hard work. Keep kicking ass. And your Black Templar Terminators are disgusting. <laughs> I mean, you say that, but they actually didn't end up doing that much against me. But yes... Well, um, props well, that says more about me than it does you, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, as you mentioned, he had these Black Templars, which was um, fun because it meant that he was, you know, trotting out the new Black Templar book, um, and it was the first time I'd obviously played Black Templars in not only years, but obviously since they've got their new book drop. Um, so he had, you know, big blob of twenty Crusaders. Um, he had a big blob of ten Terminators, and he also had. 12 blade guard veterans <laughs> three units of four um plus emperor's champion chaplain chapter master like not hellbreak to himself but an upgraded chapter master um venerable dreadnought infiltrators blah, blah blah he basically had an infantry primaris army with a redemptor it was it was space marine horde <laughs> you know and not even you know, squishy horde. It was very tough horde. Everything had good saves, inbuns, all the rest of it. Um, and he took the vow of mini transhuman and five up inbun on everything. And we were playing um, sweep and clear. So table quarters, five objectives, um, with the sort of main aim being to hold more, hold the center. Like we both took. Um, Stranglehold as secondaries. I actually took direct assault as well, so we really both had incentives to just hold the center. Um, and between me being Death Skulls, so having army-wide infantry opsec, and he had the chapter master with a relic or a trait or something that basically gave him a aura of providing opsec to then things like these blade guard and everything else. It was inevitably just going to be a brawl for the center of the table and that is exactly what happened but it wasn't a brawl where it was like a stalemate it was the opposite it was each of us sending in a wave and committing each turn to a new attack and basically destroying whatever was in the center and then our unit then being destroyed by the next wave the opponent sent in and we just kept flipping control of the center every turn um, I think right up until turn four, control of the sensor objective flipped at the end of each player's turn. No, that's and, not normal. That's quite impressive. Yeah. Um, 
So it's funny how I, it's one of those odd situations where I will say that it felt like Simon's dice rolls were not doing him any favors when it came to his saves. But at the same time, that is because I was putting a million bullets into him. And that's a relatively accurate estimate, I feel. <laughs> um, because the one thing that, you know, mini transhuman vanguard vets don't like is uh, strength 5 and strength 6 AP 1 attacks. Right. Because it's kind of the sweet spot to. I wound you on freeze. Sure. I wasn't wound you on twos anyway. You've got a um, you've got a, a three plus save slash four up in bond in most circumstances. Well, I'm, I'm reducing you from your two up to your four up regardless. So I'm just gonna put weight of shots into you. This is a game where the Gorkonaut really shined. Between just being a big stompy toughness eight thing, um, having a deck of thirty Gatling weapon. Um, and the fact that I had like two Boondacker Snaz wagons that are equally putting out near 30 shots between them, equal AP and strength and damage, you just. I put bullets and bullets and bullets and bullets into Vanguard Vets. And I, I don't think any of them ever made it to combat. Or they maybe like charged once and chopped a couple of orcs down and then got shot down themselves. And in the end, I. Um, he ran out of resources to throw into the center before I did. So it was all like my last unit of boys being led by the weird boy would just eventually swamping his chapter master who was stood in vain on this center objective trying to hold it. <laughs> and um, the event, the eventual score there ended up, um, I think it was something like 98 to 45, something like that. Because basically while we were trading on the center objective every turn, I was the one who was slightly always holding more, so I was just slightly pipping away at him on primary every turn, and then I was also achieving more in secondaries in terms of um, no prisoners, um, stranglehold, and so on. It was the score does not reflect how back and forth the combat was, but it was a it was a great game. It was my favorite game of the day by far. Proper attrition battle. Yeah, proper attrition battle. Like, every time I threw something into the centre, I knew it would take the centre, but I also knew it would die immediately in the next turn as well. So literally, there goes the unit of boys, in goes the next unit of boys, in goes the next unit of boys. Sending the next wave into it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that was a great game against Simon. It was definitely my favourite one of the day, and um, yeah, he, he told me afterwards as well that it was his favourite of the day. He had a great time. Like, he loved every minute of it, even when it wasn't going his way. <laughs> Which is what you want to hear. Yeah. yeah. And then finally, um, I had my most difficult pairing for the third round, because of course, if I'm attending any batched play event, I'm inevitably going to run into the cheese armies, such as Admech. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> so yeah like it was great that um, because of how pairings ended up playing out into the last game with um, a couple of people dropping you know after the first round or whatever um, me and Chris ended up getting to play a game so my Death Skulls versus your Admech and um, <laughs> what pretty much started out as 
Knight Lancer versus Gorkonaut was pretty much the highlight of the uh, the start of that battle, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, it was just a giant kind of two slabs of metal hitting each other and both of us going... Zzzz! Yeah, so this was a um, sort of your standard 40k game where it was long table edges, there were um, there were six objective markers but two per deployment zone and two in no man's land. Um, and the aim basically was to try and hold your own back two objectives while trying to take the opponent's back two objectives was like the mission, like secondaries and such if you chose it, which I did. Um, and you lined up with your, um, what they call the, the breaches, the cataphrons, are they? Uh, the big robots. No, the servitors. Oh, the, the, the cataphron servitor destroyers, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so like, you know, your plasma servitors, two of your doom crawlers with neutron lasers, is it? That's the one. A pair of chickens, night lancer, and uh, just, you know, some good heavy ranged punch from the Admech and you had a pair of Castellan robots as well and um, some other bits but inevitably and 10 Electro because they never see the table in any game I see the Electro Priests are very rarely taken and I wanted to take 10 yeah so yeah like you know you had um, you know you were going to have a good punch in your first salvo um, and if either one of our Titan models went down without you know, inflicting something on the opposing one it the one left standing was going to start dominating. So yeah. you got the first turn. I promptly uh, popped basically all my defensive strats that I could. So I popped Cloud of Smoke on my Speed Freaks, um, enhanced uh, custom force field booster to extend my force field for that one turn only, um, and basically tried to do everything in my power to make sure I had some amount of invuns and minus hit modifiers and just tried to stay alive <laughs> and uh, the upshot of it all was that you blew up one wound like a snaz wagon left the second one limping around on one wound you scored some wounds off the gorgonaut and i think you gunned down a couple of orc boys um and i was relatively happy with that outcome <laughs> Like I'd definitely been bloodied, but you hadn't like broken my back with that first volley. Yeah, I could have done with. I wanted to get the Gorkonaut down to half. Um, the other Snazwagon dead, um, and then it would just be little shots into your squads. But you'd hidden them quite well behind a lot of terrain, so there's not a lot I could have done about them. Yeah, so I believe um, the Gorkonaut. I think he dropped to like 14 wounds or so, which is basically about sort of approaching half bracket but I had a big mech so I, and my death skull relic and I repaired it back up to 18 wounds before launching it forwards and attempting to punch your night lancer yep um, I opened up with basically every gun that I could against this night lancer so my was bomb my gorkonaut my gun wagon um, my scrap jet everything and uh, through various invuns and rerolls and so on, I think you managed to keep yourself alive on a. I think I did about half wounds to you with my shooting before the Gorkonaut then charged you. Yeah. Um, and then the Gorkonaut did his thing of here's some big heavy punches, and um, it came down to you being your Night Lancer being left on five wounds, 
and staring down one last in one roll against a damage six attack. Yep. And again, kind of repeating um, the fate of with Khan, you failed that roll initially and had to use a command reroll to save it. Yep. Which allowed you to punch back and um, I don't think you blew up the Gorkonaut with the punch, but you dropped it to like three wounds, so you crippled it. And then in your turn, Night Lancer backed off so that the rest of your fire could bring it down. Yep. But the damage was done because by that point, your five wound Night Lancer was heavily degraded, so he didn't do much back to me. And in my following turn, I, I think I dropped him with the gun wagon in the end. Yep. Just forced through those last few wounds. And basically. It was the amount of heavy shooters you were putting into him before the Gorkonaut even like turned on just like hoping to ping wounds up and you did a lot of damage with just those heavy shooters yeah like I genuinely believe one of the um, I've said it before but I think one of the surprise winners like sort of stealth secrets in that orc codex is vehicle mounted big shooters in a speed bar. yeah just turning them into six shots apiece at AP minus one and in particular turning the super shooters on the aircraft um, into um, seven shots, strength six, AP minus two. It, yeah, it very much came down to just weight of dice, and I can only roll so many three ups. And yeah. it really does just put the wounds through. And uh, from there, then both Titans were down, smoke had cleared, and we both started sort of exchanging blows. Um, but where you would drop one unit i'd have a reserve one to come back on where you could drop the last like wag uh, the boom dacker snares and the scrap jet that allowed the death killer war trike to get through into your lines then start messing you up there and funnily enough the was bomb blaster jet kind of flew around with impunity because while it was doing damage it wasn't really scoring anything and it was never a priority for you to deal with you just had to, to sort of bear the brunt of its attacks yeah exactly so yeah, um, in the end, that equally was a game where the score didn't represent how much we had been, you know, pulling pieces out of each other, yeah. um, and it ended ninety three to was that forty five thirty five something like that I can't remember. So yeah, something like that. Yeah. So yeah, in the end, I ended up going two and one, um, but with really high scores in all three games. Even my loss was a seventy one point loss. Um, so funnily enough the thing that Dave, Dan and everyone else in the narrative wargamer chat has been basically ripping me for for the last week is that at the end of this event I walked away with the second overall place <laughs> I can only say that we weren't surprised mate <laughs> <laughs> no it was good you, you clearly knew what your army had to do and you read the objectives much, much more clearly than some people are you needed. So, so for perspective for listeners, I am a predominantly narrative player. Like Tony, I played one competitive match play game beforehand against Lama Morhenny just to try and get my head around it. My first game of this event, my opponent said to me, what secondaries do you want to take? And I never touched secondaries. So I listened to what the table next to me was doing and copied one of them. <laughs> it's reasonable advice. Like, yep. it'll probably and don't do it because that. you won't win games. <laughs> but no, like Tony, it was a great weekend. Um, it was a really nice mixture of really quite strong, well-written lists, uh, well-organized missions, and a great event ran on the day. 
uh, and the mood all around was just really, really good. Yeah, it was. It was great. Brilliant armies, brilliant time, and yeah, like I say, some brilliant games. I uh, it was just great to play three games of forty k in a day. Just great to see people in person, be in an event, and uh, I was I was very pleased to have been invited. <laughs> so yeah, thank you for the invite, Chris. <laughs> Oh, it's all, all Simon, mate. I said don't invite him, he'll bring horrible, nasty up lists. No, it was good. It was nice to get Yumi and Jake in the same room. I see Jake all the time. He's lost his opportunity to me, but uh, no, it's nice. It's nice when, uh, and especially in these days where we have been like nearly two years without a sense of normality and casual pickup games, it's nice to get everybody together. Yeah. Well, after that somewhat uncharacteristic breakdown of match play games, I feel like we need some narrative back in this podcast. <laughs> so I think it's about time that we move over to our spotlight topic for tonight. Our feature segment, 40k fun facts. Are you enjoying the Narrative Wargamer podcast? If you are, why not check out our community Facebook group at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook. We share our latest hobby projects and narrative battles and aim to grow a community for casual and narrative 40k players. We're always excited to see the awesome things our listeners are working on and it is a great place to hang out with other like-minded hobbyists. You can also find us on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer and over on Twitter at Narrative40k for regular hobby updates on our 40k projects. You kids listen up now, and listen good. The boss has got a message for you all. And looks like some of the boys have been joining the war before they got themselves a proper pen job. How are you kids supposed to get any proper crumping done without a lucky blue chopper or dead flashy shooter, eh? The boss is going to be breaking heads if he captures any of you without a proper paint job. So get your ugly hides to the paint boy over at Narrative War Painter. You'll fix you up good and proper, you hear me? Narrative War Painter is now open for painting commissions. Specialising in good quality, army-wide standards, you can get a quote today by contacting me at narrativewargamer at gmail.com to discuss any potential hobby projects and so I can help you conquer your horde of grey plastic. You can also check out examples of my work over on Instagram at narrativewargamer. What did I say? Right, you kids. Get your loot in the truck and zog off to the paint boy. It better be redder and faster when you get back. And make sure to tell them Red Tooth sent you. You might get some extra special. And we're back, guys. So, for those of you who it's your first time listening to one of our Fun Facts episodes, this is now going to be a slight little quiz format. And this is going to be all based on the law in Warzone Octarius, Book 1, Rising Tide. Now, while it is a quiz format, it's not exactly going to be a very intense or knowledge testing as such, because neither Chris or Dave have um, had an in-depth read yet of the law contained within the book, and that's what all the questions are going to be on. Now, we use a 
multi-choice format. So every question, I'm going to give a little bit of information about a thing that happens in the law and provide some multi-choice answers. They have to pick which one they believe is the true fact in the, uh, the law of the book versus the false ones that I've made up. <laughs> and as is often the case, and as Dave probably knows now from uh, a couple of these episodes, sometimes the 40k true fact can be so ridiculous you wouldn't imagine it's the real thing. <laughs> Excellent. We can also find out just how far his narrative has gone into the world of competitive play as well. Ha. There'll be no questions in here about the specifics of agendas and when they trigger and what victory points they want. <laughs> now instead we'll be having questions about Inquisitors and Orcs and Tyranids and how they all severely dislike each other. <laughs> so to give a little background to those who are not aware, um, obviously this is now from the first of the Wars of Octarius books. It's all based in the Octarius sector. We've finally moved on from Charadon and all the Death Guard goodness that was happening over there. And instead, we now have a Xenos-infected sector of space where a large tendril of High Flea Leviathan has been pitched into an almost unending conflict with the Orcs of the Octarian Empire. And all this has been masterminded by ex-Inquisitor Cryptman, and now the conflict is escalated to such a scale that it's starting to spill over into the surrounding Imperial worlds. So, you can imagine the, uh, the scale of conflict that is happening. One of my earliest memories of 40k lore is the Octaria Sector when the 4th um, or 5th edition Tyranny Codex, where it mentions, or it might have been the Octaria, probably both actually, mentioned about the uh, High Fleet being redirected towards the Octaria system um, and trying to throw them at the Orcs and hope that they blunt each other when really all they're going to do is make each other take that on them. So it was a really nice throw about the beat to see all this come out and get expanded. It's one of the Deathwatch novels where it's uh, expanded a little bit more, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's one of these things which has a long time existed in the lore but has never had this level of focus on it and like you know detail about the events that happen in and around it and obviously it's now it, the, all these events are taking place post the arrival of the Great Rift, and now that has you know influenced the the war, um, which was going on obviously before the fall of Cadia and all the rest of it. So it's interesting to get this microcosm now of the events that are actually going on. So with these questions, we're going to end up hitting on sort of like you know the the key points and general concepts of what's going on in the conflict. But it's not a blow by blow of what happens. It's sometimes a selection of just the interesting things or absurd things that have happened and are legitimately in this book, <laughs> like in the law. <laughs> so, it's broken down into a couple of little rounds. Um, you both get to pick an answer each time and then we keep a little score to see who ends up um, getting the highest correct answers on this entirely arbitrary, fictional, made-up history of events. <laughs> to set the scene, the first round is called the Cordon in Penetra, and we will start with question one. The actions of ex-Inquisitor Fidus Cryptman damned hundreds of Imperial worlds to destruction and cost hundreds of billions of Imperial lives 
to bring about the conflict between the Orcs and Tyranids in the Octarius sector. After fierce criticism by his peers, how did his rival Inquisitor, Nashia Shanason, propose to correct Kripman's folly and combat the growing Xenos threat? Did he A, launch a vast Imperial Crusade into the heart of the conflict, aiming to destabilize and cripple both Xenos forces simultaneously? Did he B, redirect an awakening Necron Tomb Fleet into the Octarius Sector, pitching another Xenos race into the escalating conflict and further dividing the struggle for power? Or did he see quarantine the Octarius Sector, abandoning all Imperial worlds within to the rampaging Xenos, damning hundreds of Imperial worlds to destruction and costing hundreds of billions of Imperial lives? Because, you know, the Inquisition is not at all hypocritical in its actions. No, only the best interest of the people are absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think I know what the answer is. Go on, Chris, I'll let you guess first. Uh, uh, the, the final latter answer. Yes, I mean, the, 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 the second one, throwing the, the Necrons in would be uh, basically the same action that he's criticising Crippen for. I don't imagine Crippen's actually getting criticised for the loss of hundreds of worlds and billions of lives. Uh, that's that's not really the thing that the Inquisitors criticise each other for, is it? Um, what was the first option again, Tona? Launching a vast Imperial Crusade into the heart of the conflict, aiming to destabilise and cripple both Xenos forces. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of unlikely as well. Although, you know, it's an equally suitable waste of waste yeah, of human I, life. That's, that's... I wouldn't say it was unlikely. I'd say it was feasible. But um, what's easier, launching a crusade and risking the finite resources of the Imperial military, or a few worlds and a few billion civilians who you know probably weren't doing anything anyway? I, I think I'm going to start this one by agreeing with uh, Chris. I'll not do this all the way through, but I think um, <laughs> I think actually the. Uh, the sacrifice is is the most 40k thing you are indeed both correct this is as it became known the cordon impenetra so yes this is kind of the concept of the whole conflict as it stands now that the orcs and the tyranids are engaged and they're starting to uh, spill out into imperial space the uh, inquisitor inquisitor nashia san husun has made it his life's work now to basically create the Cordon Impenetra. So a selection of Imperial worlds that surround the sector have been heavily reinforced and turned into Warden worlds, abandoning all the Imperial worlds within the Cordon to their fate, (laughs) with the aim of containing the Xenos until such time as they have destroyed each other. Sorry! Your service to the Emperor has been commended and will be archived. Thanks! Well, it's funny you say that, Chris, because the second question I have for you is how did the Inquisition inform the unfortunate worlds within the Cordon Impenetra that they would be abandoning them? Your options are A, they didn't. (laughs) That was my instinctive response even before you gave the options. (laughs) Yeah, exactly the same thing. B, they dispatched inquisitorial mandates to each world, demanding their honourable sacrifice in the name of the Emperor. Or C, they dispatched inquisitorial mandates, 
requisitioning and recalling any meaningful military assets these worlds may have had remaining. They're all equally horrific, but they're all also equally feasible. Um, I will say... I'll say B, personally. Uh, I'll, I'll go with C. I mean, you might as well take the defences away from them if they're going to abandon them, right? Get off the black cannon, we need it! No, please! <laughs> well... Unfortunately, I can tell you, you should have both trusted your instincts because the <laughs> truth you just didn't say a word. Yeah, that's the cheaper, more efficient way of doing it as an Inquisitor, isn't it? They simply, like, agreed upon the cordon boundaries and anyone within the cordon was abandoned and they weren't even informed of this fact. Fair enough. However, how did the Inquisition actually go about evacuating key personnel, military forces, and relics from these abandoned worlds. Because like you say, there's still valuable things on them, even if they're not necessarily telling them that they're abandoning them. So, the options are A, special task forces... Sorry. A, special task forces were dispatched to recover these assets. B, false mandates of emergency reassignment off-world were issued. Or C, planetary governments were infiltrated and kept ignorant of their resources being reappropriated by the Inquisition. A third one sounds like a lot of effort. It, yeah, for an Inquisitor who can just say, I'm having this if you don't like it, tough taters. Yeah, the first one where they're sending kill teams and just snatch what they want it seems more inquisitorial. Yeah, I want to say A or B. Um, you pick one, Dave, I'll go with the other. I'll go with A. I'll go B. Well, funnily enough, I don't often start the quiz with these so early, but this is a trick question. It is, in fact, all of the above. <laughs> Tony, who, who do you think you are? Mad <laughs> competitive power, that's what I think. <laughs> who does he think he is? Inquisitor Rose. Nope. Well, hmm. well played, well played. So, in fact, you were both right. They did dispatch task forces. They also issued false mandates of reassignment. And they also infiltrated governments and kept them in the dark about stuff being reappropriated. All these were employed by the Inquisition. So, am I correct in understanding that as a result of abandoning all these planets and their governments and not telling them, they immediately dispatched loads and loads of people to infiltrate them and take their stuff? Yes. So they had every opportunity to inform them. Of course they did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. They, they were abandoning the worlds. They were not abandoning the important things on the worlds. Good, good. They were just making sure they got them off-world first before the Tyranids or the nice, Orcs got there. All these nice devoted shrines and just all the civilians say, what, what are you doing with that? Oh, we need to uh, take it away for cleaning. <laughs> And then, finally, as part of the formation of the Cordon, how did the Imperial forces enforcing the Cordon respond to calls to aid and reinforcements from the abandoned worlds? Because just because they're being abandoned doesn't mean they were not calling out for help. So, did they A, respond with false confirmation of reinforcements being dispatched in order to raise the morale on the doomed worlds. B. 
They did not respond at all, but used these distress calls as vital intelligence on movements of the rampaging Xenos forces in the sector. Just watching, you know, the little worlds blink out and notice where this... Right, that's where they're going for Yes. Yeah. Or C, they simply responded with, The Emperor protects. Oh, God. Um, I want to say B or C. I'll say B. Fair enough. I, I think I'll go with C. Uh, they'll have sent... No, A. Just not responded at all. No, not responding at all is B. Is that the one you want to go with? Oh, no, sorry. I wanted to go... What was A again, then? A is where they send confirmation that reinforcements are being dispatched, even though they were not. Oh, well, yes. Let's let's go with that one, then, because that's, uh, that's, that's not at all evil. So, um, that's what the Inquisition would do. Well, of Vaudry and Dave, I can tell you that Chris is right... What the Inquisition actually did was not respond to distress calls, but they did use them to track the movements of the Xenos. Amazing. Excellent. Yeah, because that's just the cold strategic thing that they would do. It's like, huh. These worlds keep be this world's been um, sending us distress signals for months. Now they've suddenly stopped. Hmm. Looks like the Tyrannies must have arrived. So yeah, you can see the extent to which the cold and calculating inquisition went about forming the cordon in Penetra in order to basically create this blockade to contain the Tyranids and the Orcs and uh, just hope you were not unfortunate enough to be stuck on one of those worlds inside the cordon when it was formed. <laughs> However, it was not long after the formation of the cordon before the first major offensive occurred where Tyranid and Orc forces amassed in large enough numbers to actually pose a threat to potentially break out of the Cordon Penetra. And this happened in the Pancalis system and quickly became known as the Pancalis Breakout. So this was where this unexpectedly huge migrations of High Fleet Leviathan and huge Orc war forces just fell upon the Pancalis system in that section of the cordon and it was the first real testing of the Imperial defences attempting to try and hold back um, the tides of aliens trying to break out. To that end, I have a few accounts of the interesting and obscure things that might have happened during those conflicts. So first of all, a particularly cunning orc warboss managed to destroy the orbital defences of Kernak Free by using which of the following strategies? A. Ramming a fleet of captured Imperial and Mechanicus vessels into the orbital platforms. B. Teleporting packs of bomb squeaks directly on board the orbital platforms. Or C launching asteroids towards the orbital platforms as a shield wall for his ships to advance behind. Yes. So we've got to think uh, either brutally cunning or cunningly brutal since we're trying to put ourselves in the mind of an old warlord, right? I'll say bomb squigs just because tried and tested and everybody loves it. I, I, I feel the, the asteroid shield wall. Maybe they've gone all Saxon this time. 
They're going bomb squigs and asteroid shield wall. Well, I can tell you, you're clearly both thinking too much like an Imperial officer because the Orcs did in fact ram a fleet of captured Imperial and Mechanicus vessels mm. directly into the orbital platforms. That's too clever. Well, the Inquisition need to know about this. So it gets cleverer, Chris, because crewed by Bloodaxe Orcs, the captured ships were able to close into range as the defenders hesitated to fire on seemingly friendly vessels because it's an Imperial fleet, it seems. <laughs> right? Now, my next question is, how did the Bloodaxe Orcs on board the captured vessels maintain this ruse long enough to engage collision courses? So, was it because A... They had damaged several of their own critical systems, including comms, so as to masquerade as damaged vessels seeking safe harbour, unable to communicate as they approached. B. They held human crew captive at gunpoint, forcing them to speak with the orbital platform operators, enter security codes, and request permission to board. Or C. The orc-crewed vessels were led by a captured Astartes battle barge, a vessel the Imperial defenders assumed must be coming to their aid, because the idea of them capturing a space marine vessel is just unthinkable. I'm going to go B or C, and I think I'm going to go... I'm going to go B, purely because I we've not had any mention of Astartes up to this point. Do you, do you mean C? Are you going for the option with the battle barge? No, with the, with the captured crew, the captured crew members. Oh, okay. Sorry, I see your point. Yes, yeah, so you you're thinking the captured crew members who were forced to interact at gunpoint. Yes. Yeah. And it's blood axes, so they're a little bit more sharp up top than other orbs. I, I like both of those options, but I, I also like the idea that at some point orcs must have defeated space marines in a for a strike cruiser. Yeah, let's go with that one. So you're saying because they had an Astartes battle barge, they assumed it yes. must have been a friendly vessel. Well, Chris definitely is in more of the mind of the Orc tonight because he is right. The Orc uh, crew had captive human crew members held at gunpoint speaking to the platform operators requesting Absolute permission lads. to board. And the funny thing is that once the orcs had engaged collision courses, the orcs on board then evacuated in ramshackle drop uh, ramshackle dropships just to go rejoin the approaching orc armada in full. So they didn't even crash themselves; they just left the humans on board and <laughs> jumped ship before these things crashed into the orbital platforms. That running away—that doesn't seem terribly orky. Not running away. They're going to go join the war for another fight. They finished with this fight, that fight they won. Okay. But moving on from orcs, obviously, we also have a lot of Tyranids invading these worlds. Yay, so, my first my first 40k love Tyranids, my first ever army I started. Well, can you tell me this? On the fortress world oh, of Vand, when it became clear the invading Tyranids could not break the heavily fortified citadels scattered across the planet, how did High Fleet Leviathan adapt its tactics? Did it A... Oh, God. Yeah, right. Did it A, withdraw its forces from a neighbouring orc-held world, allowing the orcs to launch a war against Vand and break the citadels for them? 
be, the Hive fleet turns to consuming the rest of the planet instead, leaving the Citadels isolated by devoured wasteland, ready to be overwhelmed later on one by one. Or C, did the Hive fleet actually abandon the world, leaving the survivors alive, but stranded in a star system otherwise devoid of all life and resources? I think it's A. A is resonating with me. I'm going to be. Drank a lot since then. Yeah, isolating them and leaving them—that's actually a, a real strategy that that uh, is is sometimes used in war. You know, you're stuck in that place. Well, you can stay in that place, and I'll go everywhere else. Um, I'll go with B. Oh no, if it's a real strategy, that's a stupid choice, isn't it? Because this is forty capers. <laughs> when when does the law ever reflect real strategy? Yeah, let's go the more extreme example of the same thing. They they took out everything else in the system. Well, I can tell you, Dave, you were right at first. Your initial what? instinct was correct. You should have stuck with B. They did, wow. in fact, devour the rest of the planet, leaving the citadels isolated to then be picked up one at a time. Oh, well, there we go. No <laughs> one scores a point in that one. However, by comparison, over on the Grand Citadel of St. Athelstein, uh, it was destroyed when Hive Fleet Leviathan employed which tactic to storm the battlements? Was it A. Bio Titans formed living Bio Titans formed living ladders, allowing smaller bioforms to ascend them and reach the defenders. B. Countless gaunt bioforms were thrown at the defenders until the dead were piled high enough for the next waves to scale the walls. Or C. Broods of harpies dive-bombed the battlements from above, dropping warrior bioforms directly into the defenders' ranks. I think it's A. <laughs> well, they're not going to use uh, inorganic ladders, are they? <laughs> no, exactly. Uh, yeah, dropping them in. Dropping them straight in. They're, they're not stupid. They're not entirely land-based. They, uh, they float about in the void. I've been watching that uh, Warhammer Plus thing with the Blood Angels and the flocks of um, Tyranids fighting against the Blood Angels. So yeah, they, they'll use all the tactics. So I think uh, Harpy's dropping them in. Uh, which one do you see you're going for, Chris? I was going to go for A, uh, using the larger Biotitans as ladders to then send the smaller ones in. I can tell you, Chris is right. It was the Biotitans swarming living Yay. ladders. Yay. Well done. So that's a couple of examples of what the Orcs have been up to and what the Tyranids have been up to, but also we've got one or two examples of what the Imperium has been up to whilst trying to contain these threats. So, on the world of Gratu, High Fleet Leviathan demonstrated a hyper-aggressive pace of consumption, devouring all local fauna and livestock to the point of extinction. With their food supply severely depleted, how did several regiments of the Imperial Guard manage to stave off starvation? Was it A, squads drew lots for suicide missions in order to reduce the number of mouths to feed? B, they resorted to cannibalizing deserters? Or C, they resorted to consuming tyrannid corpses? Again, they're all likely. Um, I'll go for eating Tyranids. Yeah, I mean, that 
that, that seems the least likely. That seems kind of plausible. Um, yeah, exactly. There was uh, the Suicide Squad. I think I go over the Suicide Squads because, yeah, it didn't quite make sense. Therefore, it's the most 40k. <laughs> we don't have enough food, too many people to feed. Yeah. Well, we can't increase the food, so why don't we reduce the number of people? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And ignore the fact that they have a potential food supply. <laughs> <laughs> well, they did not ignore the fact that tyrannid corpses could indeed be a food supply. So okay. that is a point to Chris. Now, funnily enough... I think I remember a lot of them died because actually they're quite poisonous. Well, I don't, it doesn't specify that any of them particularly die as a result of eating the tyranny corpses, but that particular behaviour did earn several regiments either months of quarantine at best, or execution by suicide mission at worst. Excellent. <laughs> So, yeah, funnily enough, if you were caught eating tyranny corpses, there was a good chance you would be sentenced to suicide mission. <laughs> now, this one is a... Uh, this was a whole, like, section of a uh, page of the book here. Uh, this was a big conflict that went on in one of these worlds. So this was... On the world of Irimwald, a growing battle between orcs and tyranids threatened to consume a vital city-sized imperial factorum. The conflict escalated to include super-heavy tanks, bio-titans and stompers, and hundreds of thousands of troops were committed to securing this facility. The Xenos were eventually defeated, but it had cost 4 million casualties, and 90% of the Factorum had been destroyed. Obviously, this was declared a Grand Imperial victory. Well, it's only a small factory if it's a, only a city-sized one. <laughs> but my question to you is this. What product, and this is what sole product, did this factorum produce? Was it A, lasguns, B, tank tracks, or C, servitors? Ooh, all equally useful. I'm going to say tank treads. Tank treads is good. I mean, las guns would be kind of sensible. Servitors would be the most daft one. Uh, I'm, I've got a theme tonight. Let's stick with <laughs> stick with the servitors. So we have servitors, and Chris is going with tank tracks. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, that's right. I can tell you, Dave. Unfortunately, Chris is getting it right tonight. He seems to know more about this inquisitorial containment than he's letting on. Because it wasn't uh, the it's a conspiracy well, theory, if he knows. It's my, inquis it's my inquisitorial seal that I've not shown any of you yet, so let's just keep that hush. And then finally for this round, we have a question about the space room chapter known as the Obsidian Jaguars. Uh, the Obsidian Jaguars space room chapter battled fiercely against orc forces across the Octarius sector, seeking vengeance upon the Greenskins for the recent fall of their homeworld to another orc war. During the fall of the world, how was the Obsidian Jaguar's fortress monastery destroyed? A. Was it crushed by a falling space hulk crashing into the planet's surface? B. Was the entirety of the fortress monastery dismantled and looted by the orcs? Or C. 
was it set to self-destruct and detonated by another Space Marine chapter? Ooh. Do we know the other chapter? Can we pry? I think I'm going to go with that one anyway, whoever they are. I think that sounds kind of like the kind of thing that an Inquisitor would do. Uh, is is tell one chapter to blow up another chapter in Porter's monasteries to stop the alien. I'll go for completely raided and looted by the orbs. Although, before you give us the answer, Tony, I do think I'm going to be wrong because you haven't told us the chapter. <laughs> but it's funny, so I'll admit, I wasn't expecting you to actually ask that question, which is perhaps a little bit of an oversight on my part, because... You are right, Dave. It was set really? to be self-destructed <laughs> and detonated by another Space Marine chapter. And the reason I didn't specify at the time was because I was going to offer a bonus point if either one of you could work out which chapter it was. Now, okay. in hindsight, I maybe should have just told you so that it didn't give away the fact that that was an answer of a second part to it. <laughs> but Dave does get the point because he did surmise that it is a very... Um, imperial thing to do and it was exactly that they set the uh, chapter, the fortress monastery to self-destruct to deny the orcs getting it and looting it for its resources so uh, what was the name of the chapter whose monastery blew up then the, it belonged to the obsidian jaguars space ring chapter the obsidian jaguars. And so I will that's tell you a this, primaris chapter isn't it uh, it is yes but I will tell you that the chapter responsible for destroying the jaguars chapter monastery was one of the first founding chapters uh dark angels <laughs> chris is going for dark wolves. angels which is that dave wolves space wolves space wolves right would you both care to explain to me your logic <laughs> i'd like to uh but it's a secret uh that i'm keeping for the dark angels on his behalf <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I because it's something the Dark Angels would do. Uh, no, because the uh, space wolves are known as executioners. Yeah, again, a very valid point. Ah, uh, so, so you you think that? Um, yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I can tell you, Dave, you are correct. It was the space wolves. Oh my days! Good work, Dave. <laughs> yeah, it's so a little bit more uh, historical knowledge in there. Is historical historical is even the right term? <laughs> You definitely had some good logical points there, Dave, and believe it or not, it paid off for once in Portuguese law. <laughs> yeah, you gotta you gotta go with the internal logic though, not like normal proper logic. Well, let's see if you can apply that logic to our next round, because round three is the return of the name game. This is Corn's Paradise, the Blood God's name game. Also known as Can Tony find the same online random generator that Games Workshop themselves use? <laughs> uh, you'll be surprised this time around Dave you will be surprised now what is Korn doing in this Octarius sector I may hear you ask well as I alluded to earlier with the opening of the Great Rift various forces obviously have uh, emerged across the galaxy and one of these was one of the Blood Crusades of Korn ended up finding its way directly into the Octarius War and as a result of that, a portion inside the cordon is now known to the orcs of Octarius as Demor. And it is Demor because of the fact that there is more fighting there than anywhere else. <laughs> no, that's not I the case. I see if they did that. 
Right, it's called it's called Damor because there's just so much blood and carnage there because basically there's an entire, you know, cornate crusade basically going on there. So demons, warbands, Astartes, all of it. All these blood worshippers who basically see the Octarius sector as well, paradise. It's constant slaughter and bloodshed and there are skulls and skulls and skulls and blood and blood and blood and it, it will not stop flowing and there are more skulls than Kong could ever sit on. <laughs> so they just love it. And um, as a champion turned demon prince of Khorne, Voda Bloodprice had ascended to demonhood by slaughtering orcs and tyranids in the Octarius sector. And as such, he commanded a host of Khornite warbands and heretic Astartes forces. But can you tell me, which of the following were devotees of the Blood God fighting under the banner of Voda Bloodprice? So, I've got a selection of names here, and I would like you to tell me whether or not these are in fact some of the Khornate warbands fighting for Voda. First of which is the Skull Hunt. Uh, is this a yes or no question? Yeah, true or false. Yes, no. Yes. No. The Skull Hunt is true. That is a point to Chris. Yes. I remember them in the Condian Kingdom. Ah, okay. Good homage. Well, how about this next one? The Skull Bearers. Wait. The Skull Bearers. That sounds more like a loyalist sort of thing. Uh, I, I've no. got to uh, If you're saying no, I'll say yes. I can tell you, it is false. That is a point to Chris. However, I am going to award a bonus point to Dave because the Skullbearers are indeed a loyalist chapter of Space Marines who are active mm. and fighting in the Corden Impenetra. Excellent. Excellent. I, um, I paint a lot of Death Watch. <laughs> Next up, we have the Blood Blessed. Uh, yes. Uh, I think I'm going to have to agree. That does sound very cornite. You are both correct. They are a Cornish warband. Next, we have a Cornish warband. A Cornish warband. Cornish war, right? You are my love. <laughs> Blood Blessed, we are. Pastors for the pasty god. <laughs> Next up, we have the Rampages. Oh, God. No. Yes. Although, again, it sounds like an Imperial chapter of Space Marines. They are a they're a special unit uh, for World Eaters in the Horus Heresy. They're the elite kind of combat troops. Uh, okay. They could split off into their own chapter, though. Let's have Tony give us the deal. So, just to confirm answers here, Chris, are you saying this is a warband? I'm saying it isn't a warband, but I won't be surprised if it is. And I'm saying it isn't, but I, you know, I'm the same. <laughs> no, which way you're saying it isn't? In that case, I'm saying it is, saying but it I won't isn't. be surprised if it is. Dave's saying it I'm is. Say but equally, we won't be surprised if we're wrong. Right, so Chris thinks it isn't a warband, Dave thinks it is a warband, of course. Yes. Right. Yes. I can tell you, Chris gets the point because they are not a warband of corn. They are a loyalist chapter of Space Marines fighting in the Corden Impenetrable. Of course they are. Yes. Of course they are. Ruddy rampages. We'll find out about that in a bit. 
Next, we have the Death Strike. Uh, now, <clears throat> the Death Strike are the chapter that's quite often confused for Rainbow Warriors, and you know that. Right? Uh, but do you know that? <laughs> no, I do know that. I, I do know that for sure. <laughs> but Dave, do you? Can you be certain? But I have painted a fallen Rainbow Warrior. Ah! Um... No, no, they're not Warband of Corn. The the Death Strike are a chapter of Imperial Space Marines. Still loyal, even after the uh, the Sundering War, the Awakening War. What was it called when the Sicadictrix Maledictum opened? The Sicadictrix Maledictum. When it opened, I can't, I can't it say was that. The Trina Nocturna. Thank you. Uh, they were still loyal at that point, so I don't think they formed to Corn the Death Strike. And what does Chris? Say. I will go for the opposite because I am a gentleman. <laughs> well, I can tell you that Dave's knowledge of obscure space room chapters is coming to his aid because, yes, the Death Strike are in fact a loyalist chapter of space marines fighting in the Cod and Impenetra. <laughs> if you look them up, they have the same wing lightning symbol as the Rainbow Warriors, but it's in yellow on a blue background. So I wonder whether or not Dave may have identified the uh, secret code of this round. <laughs> <laughs> Obs obscure space wing chapter. Is it a warband of corn or a loyalist space wing chapter? And are they all within the um, lockdown sector in the Octaria system? He's, he's got a list. I bet there's a list in there when we finally get to reading the fifth. <laughs> Next up we have The Harvest. They definitely 100% are a Cornate warband. That, that's really confusing because I'm painting halflings at the moment for a fantasy. <laughs> So Harvest has got a completely different context. Uh, I will disagree for, with Chris, uh, but I think he is probably correct. I'll say I hoist my that. dog in the air as offering to the Blood God that that is true. That is true. Chris gets the point. They are a Cornate warband. Yay! Corn cares not from where the skulls flow. <laughs> he cares not from um, when the Yeah, because I think comes. if I remember correctly, they've got like bone helms and black armor and red trims. They all bleed into one. Oh, yeah, literally. Yeah. <laughs> then we have the Bloody Dawn. Bloody Dawn, what you like? Uh, no. I, I'm going to say yes. That does sound like the kind of name that uh, a Cornite Warband would have, and it doesn't sound like a Space Marine chapter. Having just painted the Flesh Eaters and I'm thinking about painting Blood Drinkers. <laughs> So, uh, Dave, you're saying it is a Core Knight Warband and Christian. I'm saying it is. And I'm saying it isn't. Yeah. That is a point to Dave. They are a Corn Warband. <laughs> Despite the fact that things like the Flesh Eaters and the, the, the Flesh yeah. Drinkers and so Blood Drinkers. And... Yeah. Next we have the Dark Spires. That doesn't sound like a very good Core Knight name, does it? No, I'm, I'm not a fan. I let you take first pit, Dave. I think it's a double bluff. I think that's a Cornite Warband. I'll trust my gut and say it is not. It does sound very much like the Emperor's pointy sticks, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but I can tell you that Chris is right. The Dark Spires are indeed not a Corn Warband. They are a chapter of Loyalist Space Marines fighting in the oh, Corn Penetrate. <laughs> 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 Next, we have the Gore Fists. 
Uh, yeah, I've got to agree. I, I, the golf is a known uh, chaos warband, aren't they? Well, I can tell you that they are known to both of you because, yes, they are. But how about the Gore Golems? Ew, what? it's a possible. I'm going to say it's a loyalist chapter of Space Marines within the uh, Lockdown Center of Terrace. Uh, and I will politely disagree because I, I could see it being both ways. I think. So, so yeah, let me go the other way from Chris. Do you think the Gore Golems are a corn warband? Yes. I can tell you that, unbelievably, and this amazed me, the Gore Golems are indeed a chapter of loyalist space marines fighting Incredible. in the Corden and Incredible. The Gore Golems. And that's why they are where they are. Yes. That's who you want to be descending from the skies to save you from the tyrannies and orcs. A chapter of superhuman space marine warriors known as the Gorgolems. Even the Inquisitors raise an eyebrow when they see them knocking about. Well, I mean, uh, like I said just now, I've got an army of flesh eaters. <laughs> and then we have the Gore-Drenched. Uh, they are a Connate Warband. Yeah, if the Gore Golems can be Space Marines, why not Imperial? <laughs> well, whilst this is in fact a core knight name, it is not technically a warband. The Gore Drenched is Voda Blood Price's personal flagship. But yes, it is uh... corn devoted, so it is a point to Chris. Yay! And then finally, to round us out, we have the Crimson Raptors. Oh, that's hard. That could totally go both ways, right, Chris? I think the Crimson Raptors are... I think they're a loyalist chapter of Space Marines. I, I could see it both ways. Let me go Chaos. The Crimson Raptors are... a chapter of loyalist Space Marines fighting in the defense yes! of the Golden <laughs> Impenetrator. <laughs> awesome. Who, who authorises these chapters? My god. Right? I couldn't believe it as I was reading it. I was like, hmm, all these corn names in this corn section of the book sound great. I need something to sort of pair against these. I might have to go find a good name generator. And then I found the list of space ring chapters fighting in the cordon, and I was like, right. half of these sound like corn warbands. I know exactly what I'm going to do for the name game. And you know what? Probably progressing through the narrative, they probably end up well being corn warbands. I wouldn't be surprised, especially those gore golems. Got to keep an eye on them. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and then finally, we have the last round of tonight's quiz. Now, we've only got a couple of questions on this one, but it's sort of like the the last sort of section of narrative events that happen in the first book, at least. So this round is known as Van Roth's Crowning Achievement. The powerful orc invention known as The Crown was created by an ingenious big mech while battling the Tyranids. What unique ability did the Crown possess that made it of critical importance to Inquisitor Van Roth? Was it A, the ability to disrupt the synaptic signals controlling and coordinating the Tyranids? B, the ability to subjugate other orcs to the will of the wearer? Or C, the ability to transform the wearer into a psychic null of Orion. Ooh, they all sound like the kind of random things that all can bend, right? I'll say A because that's very important 
and it, it's so highly coveted, it's got to have something to do with breaking off the uh, shadow in the wall. But also, being able to get all the orcs on side without needing to bully them. Uh, but they're also believable. Let me go with a psychic null then, because that's the least orky thing to do, and mechs always do weird stuff. I can tell you that the crown invented by the orc big mech does indeed disrupt the synaptic signals controlling and coordinating the tyranny hordes. Amazing. Yeah, because that's, that's like so enormous an advantage in like that particular narrative. Yep, so much so that in fact the Death Watch kill team that happened to kill the Big Mech at the time and take this artifact from him realised its uniqueness and brought it to Inquisitor Van Roth to basically say, have you seen this? <laughs> what should we do about it? <laughs> so, once the Death Watch had helped Van Roth recover the crown, why did he then decide to muster a personal army of Imperial forces and tra travel to the planet of Veloria? A Overconfidence. <laughs> Probably, to be honest. But, uh, a, the world was perfect for experimentation and field testing on the crown. B, the world was outside the cordon and penetra and assumed to be safe from attack. Or C, Van Roth wanted to bring the artifact before his peers and secure his promotion to rank of Grand Inquisitor. Well, they're all incredibly arrogant and self-serving, so I'm going to have to go with C. <laughs> he wanted a promotion. Yes. I, I'll go with a similar arrogance based of a, a safe testing ground, Tony. So is that what? The safe testing... Is that, uh, is that A? Yeah, so there's either that the world was perfect for experimentation and field testing, or the fact that the world was outside the uh, cord and impenetrable and thus safe from attack. Experimentation and field testing. Yeah. Well, while Chris, I'm sure the Inquisitor probably is always trying to earn that promotion, in this instance, he went to the world because it was perfect for experimentation and field testing on the crown. Fair play. The reason being is that actually it's a, an isolated world um, in an area of dead space around it because um, it's an Eldar maiden world where in like, centuries past the Eldar had actually sterilized all of space around it and created like a dead zone to leave this world, you know, as like a perfect place in itself. Um, but then of course Orcs and Tyranids got onto it and started fighting. But what it does mean is that whilst Van Roth can go there to experiment with the crown on lo the local Orcs and Tyranids, he's not going to be attacked by the wider conflicts because there are no other, you know, worlds and conflicts around it. Yeah. So Inquisitor Van Roth had originally learned about the planet of Valoria from one of his colleagues. But this was because when he first received the distress call from his colleague, Inquisitor Avon um, Muir, on Valoria, he had originally ignored her plea for help. So he knew about the world, knew she was in trouble, had ignored it. But can you tell me why? Was it A, because this was just one of multitudes of pleas for help he had received and he had to prioritize another distress call? B, he assumed it to be a lost cause and there would be no possible survivors still awaiting rescue. Or C, because he disliked her and was busy. I'm gonna go with C. Uh, 
Uh, let's you know, prioritization or lost cause. Lost cause. I'll go with lost cause. I can tell you that yes, inquisitors are indeed that petty, and he did in fact ignore her distress call on the basis that he disliked her as a fellow colleague and was too busy to go to her aid. Fantastic! What a guy. He just personally disliked her, so had no care to try and save her. However, turns out, X many years later, the place that she was um, calling from, as it were, was perfect for his needs. So then he mustered an army to go there. And lo and behold, he gets there and <laughs> later finds her dead body and remains. Oh no. <laughs> so he was kind of right, Dave, but that wasn't the reason why he ignored her. Fair enough. Fair enough. Next time, and then finally, to round us out for tonight, our last question on part one was on Octarius. After several weeks of experiments and numerous expired test subjects, Van Roth had made no progress in replicating the effects of the crown, the artifact still only working when worn by captured Orphanex. However, to Van Roth's dismay, it soon became apparent the crown did possess a second unwelcome ability. But what was it? Was it A, the energies it emitted drew huge numbers of orcs from neighbouring star systems to its exact location, drawing a massive orc war to the Imperial base and laying waste to all Imperial and Tyranid forces on the world? B, while the energies it emitted disrupted synaptic links, it also acted as a psychic beacon, drawing more Tyranids to its exact location. Multiple hive ships soon converging on the Imperial base, laying waste to all Imperial and Orc forces on the world. <laughs> or C. The energies it emitted also weakened reality around it and swelled the flow of warp energy eventually causing a demonic incursion which spread and laid waste to all Imperial, Orc, and Tyranid forces on the world. Death by Definitely. Orcs, death by Tyranids, death by Demon. Definitely see. Because it's the only way, as soon as something in 40k comes along that's like, oh, this is going to change everything, oh god, it's spitting demons out. You know what, as much as I want to give a different answer, I have to completely agree with Chris's reasoning. <laughs> There is no easy breaks in 40k. No. I completely agree with your methodology. Like, it makes complete sense that, yes, as sort of, soon as the Inquisition finds something they think is going to save humanity, it usually starts spewing demons. <laughs> However, in this instance, it actually started spewing orcs. <laughs> <laughs> And yes, the um, unbeknownst to Van Roth, the crown had been acting as basically like a, um, a, a beacon to orcs in all the neighboring systems. And even though um, the planet itself was in this like void of dead space, it had been calling to all the orcs nearby and uh, suddenly a massive orc war appeared in system seemingly out of nowhere and descended upon the Imperial base. It's funny, there's actually like a more extended like story arc to this where the base is set up in a mountain range and when they become aware that there's this orc war coming, they try to infiltrate and detonate this old crashed Eldar spaceship 
like you know like a mini craft world sort of thing to try and collapse the mountain pass and the, the ally with some Eldar and they have a total fight with gene stealers and they practically all die except they get there at the very end and are able to initiate the self-destruct and Van Roth thinks at least he and his close guard are going to get away and then he basically like looks outside and just realises the entire valley floor of this mountain pass where the base is is just swarming with orcs. <laughs> And it ain't it ain't easy being green. And you're saying it shouldn't be that way. <laughs> I'm saying it should be. As an old player, I think that's great. But yeah, like we went to all this extent to basically try and plan this um, grand getaway, and actually, by the time he next ch gets chance to assess his surroundings, he realizes they're all just being drowned in like a literal green tide. So my first answer of overconfidence was correct. <laughs> I mean, that's just a shoe, he's an inquisitor. <laughs> so yes, that awesome. That is our 40k fun facts for Ontarius Part 1. And I can tell you that the final score was indeed 19 points to Chris and 10 to Dave. So well done, Chris. unfortunately Good Dave, effort, Olive. Good effort. Yeah, unfortunately <laughs> Dave, that means you are trapped here until the next quiz. <laughs> <laughs> Like some terrible eighties game show. <laughs> but yeah, it's um it's funny how this particular book um is more sort of like a big scene setter because it's all about the events happening across the cordon as opposed to a more linear narrative than when we were like following Typhus in the previous books. But um I haven't had a chance to go through all of it yet, but I believe book two follows a little bit more of a direct like series of events that lead to um, basically one of the key conflicts with the Imperium and the arrival of the Black Templars, and then also the final push of High Fleet Leviathan against like the heart of the Octarian Empire and the Overfiend himself. So I'm really interested to draft up part two of this quiz series to see exactly how that plays out, but. There was some fun stuff in this one, and as always, I loved writing these quizzes, and I hope you two enjoyed trying to yeah, take apart my cryptic 40k lore fan fiction and fact. Yeah, it was really Thank you very much, mate. Great, great fun. Good playing against you, Chris. Yep, GG, mate. GG. And uh, that is basically just approaching the two-hour mark, so... Before we wrap it up for tonight, shall we just quickly go through some of our community spotlights? Let's. So, uh, I don't know if, Chris, you've got one in mind you'd like to start us with? Uh, so, shout out to Boards and Swords Hobbies, my local gaming store again, where Tony and I played the other weekend. Um, we have a 40k Christmas doubles event penned for December. I think it's three weeks away now, so if you're interested in that, it's going to be super fun. There's an award for Best Christmas Jumper. So enjoy that. Uh, I will also be hosting in January, on January 16th, my first painting workshop for anybody who wants to learn more about painting in terms of um, setting up your base coats, how your primer should look, how to get the best use out of contrast. It's kind of an all-rounder kind of painter's guide to. So if you're, if you're painting and you know how to paint, but maybe you want to build up your confidence or learn some new skills, it's a morning session or an afternoon session where I basically help people out, give them advice, and hopefully get your painting faster and to a higher standard. 
Excellent. And you can find information on that at my Facebook page on the Unrelenting Brush or on the Board and Swords Facebook page as well. How's that good fun? Indeed. And um, Dave, uh, what would you like to shout out? Yeah, just one one thing. I've been trying to get my hand back into Twitter again. It's uh, you know a place I keep coming out of and going back in it again. Uh, but uh, I'm quite taken with the account at uh, Planet Old Hammer, or one word. Um, they do a lot of retreating and some of some of their own stuff. But um, uh, yeah, it plays into the sort of Old Hammer vibe. I think a lot of us seen that sort of revitalization of sort of uh, some second edition and some little bits of first edition following lockdown where people have got back into the things they used to do as a kid and, and uh, people my age tend to go back to slightly older versions of 40k than than perhaps you guys do but um yeah it ticks the spots for me and uh, planet old hammer if you like that old styling of uh, everything uh 40k and fantasy is a really nice account to follow on twitter excellent um i'll go check them out and then for myself, um, I recently started listening to a series on Spotify called Cold Open Stories, uh, which is actually basically it's like fan 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 made community theatre for forty k audio dramas, um, and the production quality is amazing. Um, so I've. I have known about them um, in the past. Um, I know the Lawhammer podcast are big advocates of them and actually contribute some sort of voice acting to it, but it's the first time I've had a chance to sit down and listen to some of the stories myself. Um, so, yeah, you can go find them over on Spotify at Cold Open Stories, and it's all it's like 40K law, um, like universe-based stuff, and it's uh, brilliant, like... Um, the most recent one I listened to was a mini series called A Cog in Crimson, which is basically about a uh, a like Mechanicum expeditionary fleet that finds itself stuck on the Imperium Nihilus side of the rift and is attempting to find its way back across um, and the events that transpire. <laughs> and it's really good. It's basically um, things sort of like Black Library style audio productions. And it's free because it's all open source community stuff, and uh, it's really good. No, it sounds great. Sounds worth checking out. Yeah, I'll have a Pat Butchers. So yeah, um, that's everything for tonight, I think, and uh, it's been a good one. I really, really enjoy doing these fun facts episodes, and I look forward to doing the next one in probably just an episode or two's time. So look forward to that. And uh, thank you again to Chris and Dave for both yeah, you. joining me tonight and in Chris's case for giving me a game the other week. No worries, mate. Pleasure is all mine all the time. And um, yeah, until next time, guys, this has been the Narrative Wargamer podcast, helping you to discover more ways to play 40k. Bye.